2: We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best and economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. And we're not going to turn this into a history lesson, but to give you some perspective, and I thought the Washington Post captured it brilliantly this morning with the word rebellion. There are different kinds of Southerners. Newt Gingrich with Sean Hannity last night was heated and on fire, the former speaker with the revolution of 1994, and now we have the immense honor of speaking with French Hill, he's been a good friend of the program, and far more important folks, French Hill is linked to American finance through his banking in Little Rock. French Hill, how do you link this moment to confidence in our banking system? Well, Tom, it's good to be with
3: you. And I don't like the dysfunction in the House. Of course, I was very opposed to what happened yesterday. Because if we want to continue to build confidence uh, in the U.S. and the U.S. in global capital markets, we've got to show leadership on the fiscal side of the House. And right here in the midst of an appropriations fight and a fight over federal funding, and less than now 40 days to a government shutdown. To be shut down in the House without a speaker for the next week uh, is not contributing to uh, that vote of confidence. So I think they are linked, and I would, I would, uh,
2: uh,
3: I really hate to say that, but uh, this uh, rebellion has uh, come at a very poor time.
2: The rebellion has a tinge of geography. We had votes from Montana and the rest, and and John, I, you know, I'm sorry, I look at this as a political context of the nation. It's not just about what we're doing at surveillance or the cable TV theater that we're seeing in Washington.
4: There's a real feeling that the Republican Party shot itself in the foot. Congressman, the question I'd have to ask of you this morning is how can the American public have any confidence in your party's ability to govern?
3: Well, I think under Kevin McCarthy the past nine months, we've demonstrated that quite uh, successfully. And that's why I'm so disappointed in eight people, which represent about four percent of Republicans in Congress. Let me repeat that, about four percent of Republicans in Congress. They uh, voted with all the Democrats yesterday to uh, take down Kevin McCarthy's speakership, but under his speakership, we passed an all the above energy strategy to make uh, America energy independent once again. We passed border security that both reforms the immigration system that's failed and do border security. And it was Kevin McCarthy after waiting 90 days for President Biden to provide any kind of leadership that crafted a historic debt ceiling deal, which resulted in $2 trillion of spending reductions and a 1% cap on discretionary spending. And then just last week, Pro offered a good stopgap spending measure so that we could finish our appropriations work, which also included a debt commission, which I think is so critically important if we want to get a handle or what really drives our deficit which are our mandatory spending programs.
5: Congressman, as yields do continue to rise, and I do know that every day you do come in and you look at that 10-year yield uh, and watch it climb in tandem with the interest payments of the U.S. government, Goldman Sachs is estimating that yields climbing where they are add about $100 billion to the deficit come 2025 versus expectations just in July alone. Do you think right now that other members of your party realize that the longer this dysfunction goes on, the more they contribute? to that deficit?
3: Lisa, it's such an important question, but I want to really turn it around and say, yes, I think every day in the last few weeks, we've talked about the impact on fiscal finance and rising interest rates with our House members. But this is a fundamental issue that goes back to both pre-pandemic and certainly during the pandemic, when the Democratic House Budget Committee chairman at the time said there's no limit to what America can borrow from the world and spend at home and deficits don't matter. And that went on steroids during the pandemic, uh, ostensibly to help offset the output uh, loss during the pandemic. But we did five or six times what that output output loss was, and we didn't take our foot off the accelerator. And President Biden's compounded that. So it's a bipartisan second.
4: To but, do this.
5: But Congressman, I mean, to be fair, the deficit did rise by about eight trillion dollars during Trump's time in office, and it actually accelerated during that period. And a lot of the uh, aid was accelerated during that point. So isn't this both uh, parties and the fact that there's complete dysfunction now just exacerbates the inability to really address any of these issues, which is a bipartisan issue?
3: No, I just said that I said during the pandemic. Well, that's the Trump administration. Absolutely. Uh, we had spending out of control there with an eye towards uh, trying to offset the output losses during the pandemic. The globe did that, but we overshot plus two lax monetary policy for too long. We've lost our way. I want to go back to when both parties said that zero deficits were the objective, not two trillion dollars, which is Joe Biden is projecting, So sure, both parties bear full responsibility for this. But what I've seen in my 40 years of being in private business and in and out of government is there is no consensus that large deficits are bad in the Democratic Party and some in the Republican Party. And that's what's got to change.
2: I would suggest, Congressman Hill, that you and former Speaker Gingrich are sort of on the same page. Well, this is embarrassing. Let's fix it. The way to fix it is an anointed Speaker of the House. How long is this going to take?
3: Well, I hope, Tom, I would have I would have uh, hoped that we could have started that process before we left this week, but uh, uh, we didn't. And so we're going to meet uh, either Monday night or Tuesday morning early and start the process of selecting a new Speaker. And I want to have that concluded next week. It's very important that we get on with our work in this midst of this appropriations a fight that we have on our hands uh, with the government shutdown looking us uh, in the eye for November
4: 17th. Hey, Congressman, this is a difficult question. It might be somewhat emotional for you. Has your party left you behind? Do you get the feeling that this is not the Republican Party that you joined and it's moved away from you?
3: I think the Republican principles of uh, balanced budgets, a strong defense, international leadership, uh, the largest open uh, market in the world that attracts people all over the world. These are core principles, loyalty to the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Uh, these are still fundamental tenets in the Republican Party, but I think we've lost our way tactically. We're throwing overboard a successful speaker that shares those views, absolutely shares those views, and was guiding us through the stormy waters of a dysfunctional presidency led by Joe Biden and a Democratic-controlled Senate not easy to do, uh, with no plan. Those eight people who voted to throw Kevin McCarthy out yesterday, incorrectly in my view, don't have a plan except they're complaining about the fiscal conditions of the country. Well, that's shared by all Republicans. So tactically, I think they failed. Strategically, I think the individual principles and governance that's guided the Republican Party uh, is, are still intact. We've just got to move forward and regroup and find a leader that we can get behind.
4: It's certainly shared by the Republicans, the majority of Republicans in Congress, But Congressman, is it consistent with the views and the beliefs of the dominant leader in the presidential race for your party going into next year? And I think overwhelmingly the answer to that is no, isn't it?
3: Well, I think President Trump uh, believes certainly in a lot of those principles. Uh, and we have I've seen him do good work when he was president. But we need him to Uh, help rebuild this and not run counter to it. We need to have the Republican Party on the same page when it regards uh, our role in the world and our role at home on how to do that. And, you know, President Trump had challenges on the spending side too, and yet he was good on some other things. So we've got to get together uh, and focus on the House in the next few days and get a House leader that Republicans can back so that we're back in this game of countering the Biden's failed agenda on the border internationally and fiscally.
4: Congressman, just finally in 30 seconds, is he helping you or hurting you now? Who? The former president.
3: I don't think he comes into play in this issue in the House. What we've seen is these eight people are not doing Trump's bidding. They're, doing, they're concerned about the fiscal affairs of the United States, I get that. They did not trust Kevin uh, McCarthy. I don't agree with that, but I understand where they're coming from. This is an internal matter that we need to solve in the House. And we need to get a leader that we can get behind, as I say, in order to counter the mistakes and the direction of the Biden administration.
4: Congressman, thank you for your opinion, your view this morning. We appreciate it, as always, French. Congressman French Hill there on the latest in Washington.
2: When in doubt, how'd we screw it up in the 30s? We didn't look at the banks. Bernanke 101. Michael Barr's a voting member as of today. Gene Tanuzo could be a voting member someday or a governor. Global head of fixed income, a Columbia thread needle. He's surviving the wars. Gene, you know there's a point where it switches from yield analysis to price analysis. Are we there?
6: It does feel like we're there. Tom, certainly. Um, You know, you're talking about it earlier, the sell-off we've seen in the long end of the yield curve is equal to the amount of work that the Fed's done at the front end of the curve all year. They've only raised interest rates by 1% through the course of this year and maybe 25 basis points more. But the, the risk premium that we've put into the long end of the curve is really what has taken investors by surprise, I think, here, because it doesn't seem to be driven by the fundamental data. We would argue that the most important fundamental data of the last couple of weeks for the bond market is the fact that core PCE inflation, the Fed's preferred gauge, came in below expectations and is trending towards that 2% target. And yet we see this this steepening. And I think that should give investors pause and think that really there is a fiscal risk premium coming back into the Treasury market.
4: Gene, have you changed your mind on that in the last couple of months?
6: Well, I think what we've been doing, John, is really trying to focus more on the what we call the belly of the curve or that five-year point, where we think we've priced in more than a fair path for the Fed funds rate and, and more than a fair higher for longer situation. And you have yields basically from the three-year point all the way out to the 30-year point sitting right around or just below 5%. And for that same yield, we'd rather put our money in the five-year point where you're more looking at what the Fed might do and less worried about that term premium or that risk premium, which, you know, we learned last year in the UK guilt crisis that that can get away from you pretty quickly.
4: Eugene, you think we've got the ingredients for that kind of outcome?
6: I really don't. I, I think it's a very different market. The depth in the US Treasury market is significantly greater than what we see in gilts, but, you know it's that time of year and and it was just a year ago we were looking at what was going on in the UK and that budget dynamic really did create scare across the market and international investors drove yields higher quite rapidly there are some similarities but I do think the depth in the Treasury market is very different
5: Jean, when we talk about the rest of the markets aside from treasuries, you can look at stocks which have been remarkably resilient in light of some of the recent moves. You can look at credit starting to maybe show a little concern, but largely holding in. Does this indicate to you that the rest of the risk complex can actually sustain yields that are rising at this pace to these levels? Or do you think that there is yet to be a wake-up call that is coming?
6: No, I think the wake-up call is coming, Lisa, quite honestly. And we're starting to see that in liquidity of credit. It's starting to deteriorate and spreads are widening and bid offers are widening. So it's a little bit of that unfavorable dynamic we saw for a lot of 2022. And this week, that started to reemerge. So I think that credit investors are getting nervous. And frankly, they realize that, you know, lags of monetary policy may be long or variable, but they do exist. And at the end of the day, Companies and consumers are borrowing at much higher rates, and that's going to cause cracks throughout the system.
5: Are you saying things actually break or force selling or anything that seems like a catalyst or just a little bit more fear that causes a little bit more caution in investments?
6: I think it's more fear overall. Um, Fundamentally, investment-grade companies, for example, are very cash-rich and their cash flow profile is stronger than it was in 2019 before the pandemic. So I don't think there's anything that's gonna disrupt that from yields going up a quarter to a half of a percent in a short period of time. When we think about highly levered companies, and for example, look at the fact that triple C, those highly levered companies that have returned over 12% through the course of this year, year to date, well, they're gonna be really susceptible to higher borrowing costs. And as we go forward, I think that rally is gonna be hard to sustain.
2: Jane, let's go back to Minnesota Finance just a few years ago. There's a chapter there when it gets like this, look at the banks. You've got the advantage of Columbia Threadneedle that you're not representing a major bank directly in that, which is our advantage this morning. Are you stressed about the banks, either too big to fail, those regionals below them and critically, the commercial real estate block below them?
6: I think most importantly, we feel really comfortable with the global systemically important banks, those the, sort of the big uh, issuers here in the US. And we've actually been adding exposure uh, since March through now to, to that complex. And we think that they're exceptionally cheap rather, r- relative to their industrial uh, peers. Um, as you get down into the regionals and, and some of the tier below that do have more of that commercial real estate exposure, I think you do have to be a bit nervous Um, I think, you know, there's a degree of capital raising that's going on in that in that next tier of bank. But that's frankly, it's been orderly in terms of investors being able to lend that capital. Um, But I don't think we should be so confident as to say we'll never revisit any of the volatility that we saw with SVB.
4: Gene, when you say you're adding, how are you doing that?
6: Yeah, I mean, we're we're adding in the new issue market and in the secondary. Um, I think, you know, looking at, you know, the the big. You know, J-, J. P. Morgan and Bank of America type, you know, uh, capital structures where, you know, the, the capital profile has already um, been fortified post financial crisis. Unlike the the regional, the super regionals that are having to add that capital now. Um, so that, these are names that you know, over the last six months we've been adding to portfolios, and you know, frankly, think that they're good alternative relative to potentially more cyclical corporate exposures. Gene Tenuso. Gene, thank you for
4: the insight. Gene Tenuso there of Columbia Threadneedle on credit at the end, the banking stress we saw earlier this year.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at scattereconomicforum.com.
4: Andrew Hornhorst, city with us around the table. Andrew, your reaction to that? What would you expect on Friday now, based on this? Does it change anything for you?
7: It doesn't change anything. I think just look at the scatter plot of ADP versus NFP. There's not a high correlation between Thank the you. two. So it's a big if, if we get this number. If we get this number though, like Mike McKee said, it's a big if, but if we get this number for payrolls on Friday, um, this is Goldilocks. You right around 100,000 jobs per month. That's about what the population growth can sustain. Um, that would be a very sustainable pace of job growth. So if we see this number, um, that would be a Goldilocks economy.
2: The heavyweight, Janet Yellen was out yesterday with some select comments that I'm sure your team saw as well. There's another economist, Michael Tyson, who has a very famous quote about getting punched in the face. You know, everybody's got a plan here. How does the Fed, I mean, with the, the trauma that we've seen the last week in the bond market, I'm sorry, there's a point here where the Fed put comes back into place. Are we anywhere near where the Fed looks at the financial trauma and says, we got to adapt?
7: So remember what the Fed is trying to do here is to raise interest rates and slow the economy. They've raised policy rates, but really what controls the economy, mortgage rates, corporate borrowing rates, those are going to be dependent on the 10-year yield. So the fact that 10-year yields are higher, I think is probably consistent with what the Fed is trying to achieve. Now, like John was talking about earlier, being in a 15 basis point trading range over the course of an hour or so in the day is probably not the level of volatility that Fed officials would right. like to see. So they're watching this as, you know, Fed officials, government officials always tell us, they're, they're watching. Um, and. They'll be watching for, do we see signs of liquidity stress that are emerging? Um, if you saw those type of things, then yes, I think you could think about, you know, would the Fed actually react to this? You know, and first it would be with their rhetoric, saying that you know, maybe Treasury yields have moved too far, but I think we're still away from that point. Um, Treasury yield curve is still inverted. We still have tenure yields below two-year yields. Um, They've come up a lot. We're not as inverted as we were. Um, If you're not imminently looking at a recession, you're not staring down a recession, um, it's not clear why that yield curve needs to be as inverted as it was.
5: A number of people have come on this show have said that a lot of the move in yields has not been fundamentally justified. Do you disagree? Do you think that fundamentally where the yield is currently on the 10-year treasury and the 30-year treasury is completely justified in compensating you for inflation?
7: I I think it depends on what you mean by fundamentals, um, but if you're including in those fundamentals the fact that we're running large deficits. There's more treasury supply that's coming to the market. So some people would call that a technical, but I would say that is a fundamental structural part of the U.S. economic backdrop right now. Um, And along with that, we're running higher inflation. And you were just talking about this earlier. If we're running inflation that's above 4% still by a lot of measures, it's not that surprising to see treasury yields above 4%. You need that yield just to be compensated for the inflation that we're running.
4: Do you think dysfunction in Washington helps the Fed's cause?
7: I I would not say that it helps the Fed's cause. I don't know if it helps anyone's cause uh, right now. Um, You know, the the developments, it it does raise questions about, you know, whether we're going to be in another shutdown, November 17th, um, and... You saw markets that were trading, that you saw markets that priced out some of the probability of a Fed hike in November. I think what the Fed wants here is for the government to stay open, which would allow them to respond to the economic data and not what's going on in DC. That is a
4: fantastic answer. Well played. Very <laughs> diplomatic. You use my favorite phrase in the whole of global finance and policymakers. We're watching this. That's right. <laughs> and we often ask on this program, what does that mean? What on earth does that mean if they say we're watching this? Means they have a Bloomberg. Bloomberg, (laughs) 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 (laughs)
5: Seriously, (laughs) Andrew, stick around. Andrew, just a final thought here. Is there an incoherence between the JOLTS data that we got yesterday, the ISM manufacturing read that we got, the fact that in general things have been coming in hotter than expected, and even just the direction of these ADP figures?
7: I think especially seeing that manufacturing was down in these ADP ADP figures is surprising. We've seen those manufacturing PMI, ISMs bottom moving up. Looks like they're going to move up through 50 and we're going to be expanding in the manufacturing sector. So I don't think that negative payroll growth for manufacturing really makes sense with where we are in the economy.
2: I look, Andrew, you've got to go back, you've got to write an eight-page paper uh, with your team, a guesstimate forward, and the heart of the matter is the vector of inflation, I mean, within the dual mandate. Do you agree that we've seen three-month annualized disinflation, and can you state that we've got a generalized vector that is disinflation?
7: I can't state that. I, I wish I could state that, but I can't state that. I think what we've seen is a soft patch in inflation. You had a lot of special factors that came together. Auto prices moving down, airfares moving down. Some of those factors are going to go the other direction. And we have a tight labor
4: market.
2: This is a key insight, John. This is the arch debate on surveillance right now.
4: 240 on Friday still? Still at 240 on Friday. Unemployment at 3.6? 3.6. 3.6 unemployment. Where's wages?
7: Wages, we think 0.3%. That's a big question. Ultimately, it does come back to wages. Do we see wages that are slowing down? Where we have them 0.3% month on
4: month, that's kind of holding steady. How much weight would you put on job openings? Here's so many complaints about that data.
7: It is not the most high-fidelity read- reading that we have on the job market at all. Um, so, you know, I'm watching the whole mosaic of jobs mm-hmm. figures. And if you look at the mosaic, I think it's
4: all telling you it's a tight labor market. It sounds like an audition for the FOMC, that, doesn't it? <laughs> and Andrew the city...
2: Christopher Marinak joins us now, director of at research. You know the chart, Christopher. I'm going to bring it out. I brought it out before. If Sandy Weil, God love him, was here today, I'd bring it out for him, and it's the Weil Group. It's Citigroup and the train wreck known as their immense boom in financialization. All that love in 2008, 10 to 1 reverse stock split, and we're at $3.90 a day. When does the Eccles Building stand up and go, Houston, New York, we have a problem?
8: Well, Tom, I don't think the credit losses at Citi are are tough enough to get us there. They're still trading at a discount, to tangible book, and have been for quite some time. I think it's been a confidence issue in both the management team as well as the game plan and executing. It may just be too far flung, which I think may have been the issue the past 30 years, and bringing it back home is going to be ultimately the answer. I don't think the credit losses there are wide enough, and I think it's the same issue for the domestic banks as well. We just don't have the credit problems to warrant that level of fear.
2: Looking at commercial real estate, just as one of the fears that are out there on a Wednesday at morning, link in here, Chris, confidence, liquidity, and solvency. Link those emotions of, say, 1998 into where the financial system is right now.
8: So the banks, Tom, have pre-tax, pre provision earnings. That's pp It's the central feature of the Fed stress test and really what we all look at as investors and analysts. That cash flow allows banks to build reserves, and we think reserve building is going to continue to happen. It's been strong year-to-date. We'll begin uh, again next week with earnings for the big banks we think reserves will rise for commercial real estate, for C&I loans, for everything. It's what has to happen during this uh, part of the cycle. And then charge-offs will rise. Uh, charge-offs are normalizing, but by the same token, they're going to be much higher in 24 than they were in 2018-19 and even going back to the 13-14 the years. We're going to retrace old charge-off levels, and that's going to be healthy. We have to recognize risk, and we have to recognize loss. I don't think we have anything close to what we had in the great financial crisis era. We just have higher losses, which banks have to provide for, the fear of the unknown in commercial real estate is, to my opinion, somewhat overblown. We still have to reserve for that. And Citigroup has their share of that, and and so do all the other banks at, at all sizes of the spectrum.
4: Chris, can we talk about the policy response to the banking stress earlier this year? There was a big focus on unrealised losses in the Treasury market. Based on the moves we've seen, those losses are even bigger. Do you believe that these banks are well insulated with the policy response of spring, even with these bigger moves in the Treasury market now?
8: sure I mean the banks can still contribute to the to the BTFP a bank term funding program they really have not done much in the last several months it's still around 108 billion dollars it's 25 percent of the incremental borrowings that the industry has done year to date. I think that the liquidity is perfectly fine the challenge is to your point John is that the losses continue to go up we think there's another two to two and a half percent mark on every bank portfolio at the end of uh, September. Wow. So, that still is going to make a net negative to tangible book. We estimate today that book values will probably fall about 1.5% for the industry using the KRE or the NASDAQ Bank Index as our benchmark. But that's still somewhat of a nuisance. The banks are still going to be profitable in the quarter, they're just the profits will not outweigh the mark they have at the end of September. We may find that that starts to reverse as we head into year-end and next year only because we've had such a big move in treasuries, it could simply quiet down. We don't have to have the Fed making a rate policy cut to see those marks start to reverse. In fact, I actually think they're going to start reversing surely because banks have a lot of four and five year securities they acquired in 2020 and 21 that are starting to burn off. There's a portion that will begin to burn off, particularly in the next six to 12 months.
5: But still, there is a point here underlying this. The risk is really in some of the reserves, the safety assets, the things that are supposed to be really liquid. At a certain point, you have to think these banks are incredibly constrained when it comes to new loans with new business. If they have such a huge book of treasuries that they're trying to cordon off and sort of keep from any kind of active trading.
8: Absolutely correct. Uh, I think you will see the loan growth slow down a fair amount in the third quarter and slow again in the fourth. We don't see loans going negative this point, but for some companies it will. Some companies are on a risk-weighted asset diet, as you've heard. A lot of that is simply machinations about what they're going to keep on their balance sheet, do a little bit less commercial real estate, a little bit different mortgage lending or other loans that have better risk weights. We've seen some companies like Synovus sell medical office portfolios because it's a better way for them to risk adjust their returns and enhance their risk-weighted assets, I think you'll see Fifth Third do the same and many other regional banks. Those are just a few examples that have announced moves to uh, limit their asset growth.
5: So, Chris, are you saying that we've seen all the the bank failures that we're not going to see anymore, especially in light of some of the very big moves and the constraints on lending?
8: I definitely agree with that, Lisa, and I think if we have a bank failure, it's going to be a small, family-run bank that you never heard of. It's unfortunate for any bank that fails, but we don't see anything big happening this year. We think all of that noise and drama is behind us. The deposits are stabilizing in the industry. The banks are simply struggling with net interest margin and, more than anything else, a perception issue about how bad credit is or is not. I think it's a lot more tamer. We simply have an increase in credit losses, which have been next to zero, and now they're coming off the floor and becoming normal.
2: Uh, Chris, we've been here before. We're gonna get a markdown, we're gonna get a rework, a redo, a restructuring, and then new money is gonna step in at a distressed price. Who are those guys? Who is the new money that's gonna step in? Are, are, Are we gonna see foreign money step in, sovereign wealth money step in, private equity? Is Apollo gonna own every skyscraper in America?
8: So, Tom, I think there's incremental dollars in family offices who actually have a fair amount of cash. You know, family offices become very, very powerful. A lot of advisors who used to be at the old First Republic are now at family offices that have reconstituted and they're competing head to head with J.P. Morgan. And those folks, in addition to private debt funds and other, uh, other private equity funds, are the new players. We think some of the institutional investors who are on the sidelines will change their minds and come back in, but they'll be followers. The leaders are going to be those family offices and other private equity and private funds. It'll be domestic, but I I imagine it will also be foreign as well. I I don't think it's just a U.S. uh, trade at the moment. But uh, the interest is there, and I think they're looking for better prices and opportunities. And clearly where the KRE is, you know, below 40 certainly uh, attracts them now.
4: A much more constructive view from Chris Maranak of Jenny Montgomery Scott. Chris, thank you, sir.
2: This is really special, and we thank Invesco for letting us speak this morning to their head of U.S. government affairs, because yesterday afternoon in that history-making moment, the bow-tied one got up at the House and said, we will continue forward. His name is McHenry. He's from the Carolinas. He's a really interesting guy working in the trenches of political operation for George Bush the Younger and on through Carolina politics. Jennifer Flitton is with Invesco, head of US government affairs, but has worked for Congressman McHenry over the number of years in chief of staff uh, positions. Jennifer, thank you so much. Who is this guy? It was like Butch Cassidy last night. We know these faces, and to be honest, most of our audience, particularly our international audience, who is the southerner McHenry?
9: Yeah, well, he's the chairman of the Financial Services Committee and he has been in Congress for um, almost two decades now. He is an institutionalist and he is a policy wonk and he's politically savvy. And it's not shocking uh, that. Speaker McCarthy chose him on that short list of members to succeed in time of emergency. Mm -hmm.
2: Jennifer, in the Washington Post this morning, Mariana Sotomayor, they lead with the word rebellion. That has a heritage, a tenor, a tone south of the Mason-Dixon line. Parse the distinction of southern Republicans like French Hill of Little Rock or Mm -hmm. Mr. McHenry of the Carolinas. Parse their distinction from eight or nine people that have rebelled.
9: Yeah, these are these are fairly new members, right? I mean, you look at these eight, and these are members who mostly came in after 2018, and they really represent um, a, a different thinking within the Republican Party that that was. Um, Um, made very clear after the election of Donald Trump, and it really is a small number, right? I mean, the vast majority of the Republican conference stood behind Kevin McCarthy, but due to such small margins in the House, a vote of basically five, eight members were able to unseat the speaker for the first time in history.
5: Jennifer, I was reading a story uh, interviewing some of the supporters of Congressman Gates in Florida, and they were very supportive of what he was doing. And they were saying, basically, the system hasn't worked for us. Throw it all down. Basically, take it apart. Why are there so many voters who essentially want to disrupt the whole system? What's the galvanizing force
9: behind that? There is a frustration, right? And Washington is but a reflection of of a lot of that frustration. These are 435 members of Congress, uh, of of the House, who come to Washington to reflect their constituencies. And there is a frustration. Um, There is sort of a a distrust in Washington. And yes, Matt, Gates has decided to come in front of that and in his expression to try to lead that. But it does actually reflect a concern over a $33 trillion know, debt, a $1 billion of interest being paid every year, right? I mean, so that frustration is real, whether Matt Gates is necessarily uh, the best to be the voice and the leader of that, I think is, is an open question. But the irony of this, Jennifer, is that the longer
5: the government doesn't make a resolution, the more bond yields are going up and the greater the interest expense and the debt profile of this country. So at what point, from a political standpoint, can you bridge that gap to try to communicate that sometimes dealing with the frustrations and the inefficiencies of the system are uh, maybe a more efficient way of getting to
9: the same end. I mean, how do you communicate that politically? Well, and I think we're going to see exactly that as they negotiate this appropriations process over the next- you know, 42 days, right, because they had until November 17th to either pass another stopgap resolution or to come to an agreement with the Senate on appropriations. And right now, they're still very divided. Whoever is the next speaker is going to have to, as you say, bridge that divide. And I think it's a it's an open question. And over the next week, these Republican members of this conference from the center to the far right are going to have to grapple with that question.
4: Jennifer, do you have a base case on where we'll be November 17th?
9: I'm concerned, right? I mean, last night was very concerning. And I think um, there's an understanding within the conference that uh, there needs to be unity among the Republicans if they're going to move forward and have any leeway with the Senate going forward. Um, But it is clearly going to be difficult uh, for any new speaker to work with the Senate, which quite frankly has a bipartisan position on appropriations. So at this point, At this date, I'm rather concerned how we're going to move forward. And I I think a a government shutdown is probable in the near term.
4: Jennifer, thank you for your insight, your opinion. Jennifer Flibben there of Invesco. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast
2: on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
1: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.